Well, every blessing to you all, and welcome back to my open air pulpit. A beautiful, crisp day. It's about one degrees Celsius. So, uh, if we may, let's begin from Genesis 41. And from Genesis 41, let's begin, if we may, in verse 8. And it came to pass in the morning that his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all the wise men thereof. And Pharaoh told them his dream, but there was none that could interpret them unto Pharaoh. So the context is concerning Joseph, who has been detained against his will for at least two years. Pharaoh was the most powerful man in Egypt, and he's got all his magicians, all his minions, all his lieutenants, a bit like King Herod would have concerning his men. A dream has come to him like Nebuchadnezzar would experience. And of course, nobody is on hand. Nobody is able to help him out, uh, explain what he has spent the night dreaming about. Verse 9. Then spake the chief butler unto Pharaoh, saying, I do remember my thoughts this day. Pharaoh was wroth with his servants and put me in ward in the captain of the guard's house both me and the chief baker, and we dreamed a dream in one night. I and he, we dreamed each man according to the interpretation of his dream. So chapter 40 ends with Joseph wanting the chief butler to remember me, think well of me. Joseph wasn't content to remain in such an awful place. And here the chief butler wants to earn some brownie points with Pharaoh. Look at verse uh, 12, please. And there was there with us a young man, an Hebrew servant to the captain of the guard. And we told him, and he interpreted to us our dreams. To each man according to his dream did he interpret. So eventually, eventually the chief butler has done the right thing. Joseph was able to help him out and you know what people say, if somebody does you a good turn, it's nice to repay the compliment, return the favour. 13. And it came to pass, as he interpreted to us, so it was. Me he restored unto mine office, and him he hanged. So Pharaoh is thinking to himself this, number one, why am I having such awful dreams? I am the most powerful man in Egypt. I'm a cross between the Prime Minister and the President. Uh, many kings, of course, in the Bible would suffer with bad dreams. And sometimes if you uh, struggle with sleep, it could be down to either a bad conscience or you are low uh, concerning your vitamin intake. And I've spoken over the years about checking yourself out, having a blood test if necessary. There was a story of, a, uh, of an Irish evangelist who had awful nightmares for five or six years. And it turned out that he was dangerously low uh, concerning his vitamin E intake. And after taking some extra vitamin E, he was back to full strength. But here the Lord, Romans 8.28, is behind the scenes. Here the Lord has deliberately sent Pharaoh a bad dream because he wants to get his attention. Back in the ancient world, uh, the good and the great those that were very powerful and even those that didn't have much power were very superstitious much like people were during the dark ages and therefore the lord wants 
Joseph to shine. 14. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph, and they brought him hastily out of the dungeon. And he shaved himself and changed his raiment and came in unto Pharaoh. So Joseph is going to be a picture of Jesus during the millennium. But here Joseph is way back, maybe 2,000 years before the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a Hebrew, he's a young Hebrew. He's in his late teens, early 20s. And here he's about to meet Pharaoh, a cross between a king, a prime minister and a president. A very superstitious individual, much like the popes of Rome uh, were during the Dark Ages. And it would be fair to say that Joseph is somewhat apprehensive. 15. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I have dreamed a dream, and there is none that can interpret it. And I have heard say of thee that thou canst understand a dream to interpret it. I've been told, Joseph, that you are something special. If you think of John chapter 3, it speaks about Almighty God not limiting the anointing concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. It speaks about the Holy Spirit resting on the Lord Jesus Christ, and there was no limitations to what Jesus could say and do. And here Pharaoh is on good ground, if you will. He wants to, on the one hand, give Joseph the chance to shine. Joseph has been detained for a long period of time. I would imagine it was pretty difficult where he was. Yes, the Lord opened the hearts to those all around Joseph. And it speaks about the Lord being with Joseph, like God the Father was with Jesus Christ. And those around Joseph could see that the Lord uh, was with him. And I would like to think that Joseph was witnessing to people indirectly about the one true God, like Jesus Christ would do, concerning God the Father. And here, he wants Joseph to explain the dream to him. Look at verse 16, please. And Joseph answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. If you ask a Roman Catholic to explain Scripture to you, they won't say, well, let me pray to the Lord about it. They won't say, let me search the scriptures to find out for you, like Acts chapter 17, or even John chapter 5, when Jesus said to the uh, unbelieving Jews, search the scriptures, for they testify of me. If you ask an honest Catholic to help you out with a piece of scripture, they will say, only Holy Mother Church can interpret the scripture for you. They don't give God the credit. And here Joseph, like Jesus, gives all the credit and glory to God the Father. It is not in me. God should give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Over in Romans chapter 5, Paul says that we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace concerning our relationship with the Lord. We have peace concerning our salvation. And we also have peace with the Lord concerning our minds. Jesus would say over in John 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. You won't find Freud or Lenin or Charles Darwin offering that kind of peace. Even the Catholic Church can't offer that kind of peace. In fact, in the Catholic Church, they have a lot of counsellors. If you are a priest in a Catholic church, you spend seven years training to become a Catholic priest, and around two of those seven years concern uh, counselling, psychology, 
Only Almighty God gives those that are born again the perfect peace which passes all understanding. So Joseph is off to a good start. Joseph has come out of jail, out of his dungeon, he's had a shave, he's changed his clothing, he's in the presence of a VIP, and you think of how deferential and reverential the Apostle Paul was over in the book of Acts when he came into contact with VIPs, we can learn a lot from that. I don't necessarily like the idea of being rude and crude and obscene and obnoxious when it comes to uh, criticizing those in authority. We know from uh, Romans 13 that the powers that be are ordained of God and therefore I think if we come into contact with a VIP, which is unlikely, but if we were to come into contact with a VIP we should be respectful. I know John the Baptist was pretty uh, rough around the edges and he would clip the wings of uh, Herod, so much so that Herod's wife, uh, second wife, was infuriated with him and she wanted to have John the Baptist executed. And it speaks about Herod gladly observing John the Baptist. Strange sort of man, uh, Herod, of course. Look at verse uh, 29, please. Behold, there come 70 years of great plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, and there shall arise after them seven years of famine, and all the plenty shall be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine shall consume the land, and the plenty shall not be known in the land by reason of that famine following, for it shall be very grievous. So he wants to explain to Pharaoh that a great famine is on the cards, is on the way. You can have seven good years of uh, whatever you need, no shortage of food, no shortage of rain, no shortage of beautiful weather such as this, but you're then going to have seven years of famine. Now, in type, the seven years concerning the famine, concerning the dearth, could be in reference to the Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation, referred to as Jacob's Trouble, is going to run for seven years. So what you could suggest, without uh, stretching the scripture too much, is the seven years of plenty could be, if you will, from creation right up until the end of the church age, the seven years of famine going into the dearth, going into people starving to death, literally eating uh, one another like they would do 70 AD, could picture the Great Tribulation. 32. And for that dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. It is because a thing is established by God, and God will shortly bring it to pass. So the Lord has a directive will and a permissive will. He would permit Judah and Tamar to come together. And last time we looked at Judah and Tamar, and Tamar was able to uh, trick Judah. She wanted a seed, she wanted an inheritance, and she got it. And once news got out that Tamar, uh, Judah's uh, daughter-in-law, was with child, he was really left with one or two options. Either put her to death and himself, or pardon her and himself. Judah wouldn't come clean in a sense of, well, I have been in the wrong, I take responsibility for my action, therefore off with my head. No. Judah was able to talk his way out of that situation with Tamar, a bit like when Moses murdered the Egyptian. 
over in Exodus, Exodus chapter 2. He murders a man, but before he murders a man, he looks left, he looks, he looks right, he weighs up the pros and the cons, he makes sure that nobody is watching him, and when the coast is clear, he moves in, murders a man, buries him in the sand, and then runs for the hills. He doesn't hand himself over to Pharaoh. He doesn't say, I have violated Genesis chapter 9. He runs for the hills. And as far as I can tell from reading the Word of God, never once repents of that, never once confesses his murder. If you go to Acts chapter 7, it gives the impression that what Moses did was justified, which, if that were the case, that would feed into a justified war, or a just war, which most churches today, most Christians today, don't like the idea of a just war. And of course there's a difference between killing and murdering. Strictly speaking, Moses, when he killed that Egyptian, wasn't a soldier, wasn't a policeman, couldn't argue, uh, or couldn't get justification from uh, Romans 13, concerning the powers that be being ordained of God, like a policeman or a soldier. He was just a prince of Egypt. And he saw a wrong and he stepped in, overreacted, and like I say, murdered a man and ran for the hills. And he ran for the hills because he knew what he had done was wrong. And when word got back to Pharaoh, Pharaoh wanted him detained, put on trial, maybe like a monkey trial, like what Jesus Christ would go through. Uh, when the Jewish leaders got a hold of him, and therefore Moses disappeared. He knew that he was in trouble. So that's the permissive will of the Lord. He would allow Moses to do that, to toughen him up, perhaps. He would allow Judah and Tamar to produce a child. But the directive will of God concerning what is about to take place is something which the Lord wants to happen. If you think of parts of the world today where they are suffering, where they are starving, where there is great uh, shortages of water and people are just dying left, right and centre, many times it is, uh, it's as a result of corrupt governments. It's as a result of the powers that be wanting to make more money off the backs of poor people. And sometimes that gets thrown at those of us which are saved, and they ask us, where is your God? There's so much suffering going on in parts of Africa, and India, Pakistan, and uh, other parts of the world. Where is your God? Well, where do you think he is? If such people reject him, and they do, if such people are worshipping false gods, and they are, if such people are having sex with animals and young children, and each other, where do you expect God's going to be? What do they say? We get the governments that we deserve. A lot of truth in that. Look at 33, please. Now therefore let Pharaoh look out a man discreet and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Now I wonder, I wonder in my mind, if Joseph was wanting the position of premier or president concerning Daniel, later in the Old Testament. And here you're going to find a couple of very interesting things. Number one, Joseph is coming of age. Joseph is like Jesus Christ in the millennium. And for the New Testament, for the church age, Jesus Christ is the mediator. 
between men and God. 34. Let Pharaoh do this, and let him appoint officers over the land, and take up the fifth parts of the land of Egypt in the seven plenteous years. Start to plan. If you think of old uh, Jethro, old Ruel, the father-in-law of Moses, he would give Moses some helpful advice, like delegation, like having uh, men over hundreds, men over fifties, men over tens, men over thousands as well. And of course Jethro, also referred to as Ruel, is a type of the Holy Ghost for the New Testament. Ruel was the father of Zipporah. She was a Gentile, he was a Gentile, he was a priest as well. And we're going to read about Joseph getting tied up with a pagan priest in a few moments, but Ruel, Jethro, has a daughter, she's a Gentile, and she meets Moses, they get married. And you've got a picture there of Jesus Christ marrying in the church. And Ruel, being Jethro, is a type of the Holy Ghost. Look at 35, please. And let them gather all the food of those years, of those good years that come, and lay up corn under the hand of Pharaoh. And let them keep food in the cities. Because it's going to be a run in the pound, as they say. If you have an economy which is in trouble, like Venezuela right now, or if you go back to the 1970s when uh, Britain were having uh, weekly strikes, and I'm told that back in the 1970s there were like uh, three nights of darkness. The electricians' union would go on strike. They wanted, warm, uh, they wanted more money. It's always money, of course. The love of money is the root of all evil. And that went on for a period of time, and it brought the uh, Labour government down. People wanting money, and here uh, Joseph has the wisdom from God. He knows what is going to occur. He's been told by the Lord what is going to occur, and he wants to really underscore the importance to Pharaoh to plan ahead. Some of our post-tribulational brethren are into uh, this uh, doctrine of uh, prepping, I think they call it prepping, prepping, uh, planning for the Antichrist's arrival, planning for inflation to go through the roof, uh, planning for martial law. And I know a lot of our American brethren are very much into this belief that uh, martial law is going to be declared in the UK, we haven't got martial law, it's somewhat different here. I know in America there are plans for pretty much everything, like in the UK of course. But I remember when uh, Bill Clinton was in office. I remember then people saying uh, that the dollar is going to crash, that the Y2K bug would uh, infect everyone and everything, that the clocks and the computers and the servers would just crash and uh, Bill Clinton would have to stay in office for a third term. It never happened, of course. I remember when uh, Obama was leaving office and there was a lot of talk about who's going to replace him, Hillary or Donald, and people were saying, well, if it looks like Trump is going to win, uh, that Obama would stay on for a third term, which is unconstitutional, I believe. It never happened, of course. I'm not saying it will never happen, but so far, it hasn't happened. I think it has to get a lot worse before the Lord actually returns. I do believe, just for the record, that we are in the last days. I mean, technically, we've been in the last days since the birth of the church. 
But I think as we look around us and we see what's going on in Israel, we see America recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel and other nations are following the American lead. And once the American uh, embassy is removed, uh, moved from uh, Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, I would, I would imagine that the Knesset would have to be relocated and once uh, the Israeli government moves their institutions to Jerusalem along with the American embassy and other uh, world powers, I would imagine that the Third Temple will start to go up. Not necessarily straight away, but I would imagine, and don't, don't quote me, but I would imagine that these things will all start to happen. And of course, you know, once the Third Temple goes up, we're out of here. They send over to the Lord to deal with uh, the Jews and uh, the unbelieving Gentiles. 37, please. And the thing was good in the eyes of Pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants. So Pharaoh believes what Joseph has told him. Unfortunately, most of our leaders today don't believe the Bible, don't really have any need or desire for the Bible. They will spend a lot of time talking about uh, diversity, unity, and the British Prime Minister will always visit the Vatican when he or she is flying around the world. It was concerning uh, to me to see Trump go to the Vatican last year. Uh, one of the first places he went to uh, when he became the American president with his Catholic wife, his Jewish daughter, and his Jewish, uh, Jewish son-in-law. It was also of interest to me that he went to Saudi Arabia. And if you think of what's going on in Saudi Arabia at the moment, very interesting times. They've got a new crown prince, a guy called Muhammad. He's about to replace his aging father. And he's saying all the right things. He wants to open up Saudi Arabia. He wants to get closer to Israel. Let's see what happens. But I'll tell you something, whether you like it or not, those of us which are saved, we are commanded to pray for those in authority. As difficult as that is, we are told to pray for our leaders. And I can tell you something, you can be sure of this, there are probably saved people living in Saudi Arabia that are praying for their new leader. 38. And Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man? in whom the Spirit of God is, almost word for word, concerning what uh, Nebuchadnezzar would say concerning Daniel. And yes, it would appear that a pagan is able to recognize the Spirit of God, the Holy Ghost, in uh, Joseph. If you think of that text from uh, John chapter 11, when uh, Caiaphas and co are conniving and planning about what to do concerning Christ, and they make that, or Caiaphas makes that wonderful statement about Christ dying for the sins of the nation, the people in general, and it says he said so not because he wanted to, but because he was the high priest that year. So God can and does speak through unsaved people. And here Pharaoh is on the money, like they say. He knows that what Joseph is predicting is going to happen, and he is completely in tune with Joseph, which if you think of Exodus chapter 1 and chapter 2, going right up until Exodus chapter 15, when Moses comes up against another Pharaoh, possibly Ramesses II, 
it's a whole it's a whole different ball game. Thirty nine. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, For as much as God hath shown thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word should all my people be ruled. Only in a throne will I be greater than thou. So this is clearly a picture of Jesus Christ on the new earth, and Jesus Christ on the new earth is going to rule and reign for 1,000 years, and he will put himself in submission to God the Father. So here, Pharaoh is a type of God the Father, and Joseph is a type of God the Son. 41. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, See, I have set thee over all the land of Egypt. He wants to make it clear to Joseph and also Pharaoh's uh, servants that what he has said is going to take place. He was the most powerful man in the world. You wouldn't dare question the authority of Pharaoh. If you go back to Queen Elizabeth I, if you go back to King James I, if you look at people like Oliver Cromwell, if you spend time looking at the Tudors, the Stuarts, and as you know, I'm currently uh, researching and writing about King James. You know that such people, also uh, Mary, Queen of Scots, were very powerful. Now, when it, when it comes to Britain in the 16th century, uh, the Queen of England, being Elizabeth I, had more power than, uh, jo uh, than uh, James, James Stuart in Scotland. King James in Scotland didn't have as much power, as much clout, as his cousin Elizabeth would enjoy south of the border and therefore once he moved from north to south he came of age and this is the same sort of a thing. 42 and Pharaoh took off his ring from his hand and put it upon Joseph's hand and arrayed him in vestures of fine linen and put a gold chain about his neck and he made him to ride in the second chariot which he had and they cried before him, bow the knee. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. So I can say two things. I'll say number one, that it was always God's will to elevate uh, Joseph up. It has always been uh, God's will to elevate Jesus up. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the same time, I can't help but thinking that perhaps Joseph is being corrupted now. A bit like Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar. Because here, Pharaoh has given Joseph a ring, picturing uh, authority. If you think of the popes, when, they, uh, when one pope dies, they take the ring off his hand, they smash it, and they seal up the uh, pope's apartments until the next pope comes in. He gets a new ring and that pictures authority and back in the day if you were a catholic if you were a vip and you went to rome you would kiss the ring you would kiss the feet of the pope now if you think about john chapter 13 the lord jesus christ wasn't particularly keen on that kind of a thing and he made it very clear that the apostles were to wash each other's feet 
the idea of Jesus Christ wearing a ring, the idea of the apostles wearing a ring and allowing people like Cornelius to bow down uh, to such a person, Acts chapter 10, was unheard of. In fact, Cornelius wants to bow down to Peter in Acts chapter 10, and he says, get up, don't you dare worship me, if you think of what takes place in Revelation 19, when John sees an angel and he almost has a heart attack, he knows he's in the presence of somebody very special, and quite naturally uh, wants to pay homage to such an angelic uh, character, and, he, and uh, the angel says to John, don't you worship me, you worship God. And it has been suggested that the angel that uh, John came into contact with, uh, Revelation 19, could have been Daniel, because we are told that we are like the angels of God once we are resurrected. So I see Pharaoh giving Joseph a ring, and I see uh, Pharaoh uh, giving Joseph vestures, vestments of fine linen. And on top of that, I see Pharaoh giving Joseph a gold chain about his neck. I'm going to retain my view that I think Joseph is slightly being corrupted here. I know Romans 8.28 is working. It always was concerning Joseph, what Jehovah told Joseph all those years ago never uh, ceased to be relevant. Uh, Joseph would have to take a detour. He would spend a few years in prison in a dirty uh, dungeon and the Lord never forsook him. The Word of God says, I never leave you nor forsake you. And Paul told you to uh, rejoice in the Lord always. And again I say rejoice and yet I can't help but think that perhaps uh, Joseph is being slightly corrupted. If you think of Rome, if you think of the cardinals dressing up the vestments, uh, wearing their religious apparel, wanting to look different to everyone else. If you think of the Pharisees wearing their long robes and the Lord made uh, that damning statement against such people, he'd also say from Matthew 6, they've had their reward. If Christ was here today, he'd be dressed like most men are today. I would imagine he'd wear a suit. Uh, I doubt he'd wear a baseball cap, but he would wear a suit. He may wear a tie, he'd wear uh, shoes. He wouldn't be dressing up like Catholic priests. He wouldn't be wearing a dog collar. He wouldn't be wearing vestments. In fact, those that wear vestments, those that wear dog collars, those that wear mitres, strictly speaking, are following that crowd back in the Old Testament, the Baal worshippers. But here Joseph is a young man, slightly in awe of Pharaoh. This is all happening very quickly. He's gone from a nobody to a somebody, and to his shock, to his pleasant surprise, because he would have had an old nature as well. He quite likes it. But just for the record, nobody in the Old Testament was born again. So when we say old nature, we have to clarify that. Now for today, if you are born again, you have an old part and you have a new part. You have an old nature and a new nature. Your flesh is your old man. But the seed, John chapter 3, that is inside of you, the seed that cannot sin, uh, 1 John uh, chapter 3 is of Christ, Christ living in us. And therefore, when it says we cannot sin, it means just that we, meaning Christ in us, cannot sin. But our old man, Romans chapter 7, uh, Philippians chapter 3, can certainly sin. And that's why you were told from 1 John chapter 1 to confess your sins. 
John wouldn't tell you to confess your sins if you weren't known to sin, if you couldn't sin. If you think of that text from John uh, chapter 9, when the blind man has been healed and uh, the uh, leaders are interrogating him and he starts to slightly tease uh, the religious leaders and they say, uh, who is this man in, refer in reference to Jesus Christ? And he said, I've already told you. Shall I tell you again? Do you want to be his disciples as well? And they say, how dare you speak to us? You are cursed. We know this man is a sinner, meaning that they're not sinners. And therefore, they're very high and mighty, very self-righteous, like the holiness preachers today. And I'm sure you've seen them online. They make videos, they go onto the streets and they preach to people and they say that no, they no longer sin, that they are no longer sinners, that they are saints. And they make a fool of themselves. They make the Lord look like a liar. And what they're saying in essence is, is that they are just as holy as Jesus Christ, which is an insane statement to make. But here, Joseph has come of age and 43 again. He made him to ride in the second chariot, which he had. And they cried before him, bow the knee, which is a bit like Herod, Acts chapter 12. And it says over in Acts chapter 12 that they were shouting out, He, being Herod, is a God. And it says that because he wouldn't give God the glory, the Lord killed him. And according to, I think it was Josephus, he spent uh, 12 days suffering as he was eaten internally by worms or maggots of some kind. An awful death. And he made him ruler over all the land of Egypt. So let's not go beyond the text. Let's read it as it is. Let's appraise it. Let's try and understand it as it is. You've got Joseph being anointed, if you will. Or if you watch these old mafia movies, they say that um, he got made. If you think of the Godfather movies, there's a scene in Godfather 2, I think it is, or Godfather 3, where uh, Brando is uh, about to die and he makes his son Michael Carloni the uh, successor to the firm as they are called and now Michael Carloni played by uh, uh, forget his name may come to me in a minute becomes the Don uh, Al Pacini Al Pacino Al Pacino and now he is the boss Something similar is taking place, but this is very much going back to Joseph being a type of Jesus Christ. God making Jesus Lord of heaven and earth. Uh, verse 44. And Pharaoh said unto Joseph, I am Pharaoh, and without thee shall no man lift up his hand or his foot in all the land of Egypt. During World War II, Goering had a brother, and uh, Goering's brother was quite unusual, very different to his uh, brother, I forget his uh, first name, and Hermann Goering's uh, brother, uh, on more than one occasion, was able to rescue Jews, and the Gestapo got wind of what uh, Hermann uh, Goering's brother was doing, and they wanted to arrest him, detain him. But every time they tried to put their hands on Goering's brother, he would say, do you know who my brother is? 
and they would say, because they didn't always know who he was, when they first uh, picked him up, who's your brother? And he would say, Hermann Goering, which was Hitler's number two. And of course, they all froze with absolute fear. Their boss was Heinrich Himmler, an awful man, but they had to tread very carefully. And memos would go back and forth between uh, the hierarchy at the Gestapo to people like uh, Himmler. And once Himmler uh, was aware that Goering's brother had been detained, he would have to issue notes to his lieutenants to release Goering because Hermann Goering would have been very unhappy. And time after time, Goering's brother got very near to being sent off to one of the many death camps in occupied Europe. And his trump card was, but do you know my brother? And they would say, who's your brother? Hermann Goering. Get him out of here. They wouldn't dare raise a hand against Hermann Goering. And here, it's the same kind of a thing. He wants people to be aware that Joseph is his prime minister. And if anybody was to question uh, Joseph's role in the kingdom, they would have to question Pharaoh's role, which wasn't something that you'd want to do. 45 tells you that uh, Joseph has now uh, been given a Gentile to become his wife, picturing uh, the wife of Moses. Of course, this piece of scripture is before the law. After the law, the idea of a Jew marrying a Gentile wasn't uh, something which was uh, acceptable. It was always the Lord's will for Jews to marry within their own tribes. Of course, Esther would go on to marry a Gentile king, which again pictures Jesus Christ marrying the church. Many types and shadows. But what also intrigues me is the fact that uh, Pharaoh will give Joseph a name change. Uh, God would give Abraham a name change. Revelation speaks about uh, those of us which are saved uh, getting a name change. The Lord Jesus Christ would give uh, Peter and uh, James and John a name change. The apostles would also give uh, Barnabas a name change. So when a name change takes place in scripture, it normally uh, denotes a change in one station. And here you've got a pagan being Pharaoh, a worshiper of many gods, giving a Hebrew, a Jew being Joseph, a new name. And on top of that, a Gentile uh, wife. And on top of that, the Gentile wife's father uh, is a pagan priest like Jethro, like uh, Zipporah. Look at verse uh, 46, please. And Joseph was 30 years old when he stood before Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And Joseph went out from the presence of Pharaoh and went throughout all the land of Egypt. So 30 years of age, 10 years younger than uh, Moses when uh, he would marry uh, Zipporah leading up to uh, the encounter with the Lord up on the Mount, Exodus chapter 3. And please join me this coming Sunday when I get to Exodus chapter 3. 
Uh, 47, and in the seven, plenteous years of the earth, excuse me, and in the seven, plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. Seven, plenteous years, the earth brought forth by handfuls. 7,000 years, creation, to the end of the church age, possibly. 46, Joseph was 30, Jesus Christ was 30 when his ministry began. And by the time he gets to 33 and a half, cut off. Not for himself, but for the sins of the people. Daniel chapter 9. 48. And he gathered up all the food of the seven years, which were in the land of Egypt, and laid up the food in the cities. The food of the field, which was round about every city, laid he up in the same. So you are reading about a literal famine. You're reading about a literal man living during a literal time. So many people attack the Bible, and sometimes Christians attack the Bible. Sometimes Christians like to allegorize the scripture, and they say, well, Joseph wasn't a real man, or Moses wasn't a real man, or Moses didn't really lead the children of Israel through the Red Sea, and they mess around with that piece of scripture, Sea of Reeds, and all that nonsense and once you start to do that you number one make uh, the Lord out to be a liar number two you question uh, the scriptures and number three you rob people's faith in the scripture the worst thing I would suggest somebody who is saved can do after they are saved is to mess around with the scripture Revelation 22 speaks about those add to the scripture those that take from the scripture there's other ways of course to undermine a person's faith in a book you could read this piece of scripture and say it never happened you could say there's no evidence for joseph you could say it's just a book of fairy tales and if that's the case why is this book banned in nine countries why is it almost illegal for street preachers in canada to preach on the streets from a king james bible why are people in britain being arrested for preaching from the king james bible listen listen if this was just a phone book, if this was just a phone book, or if this was just a book like one of Dickens or Shakespeare or any particular writer uh, from the 16th, 17th, 18th century, or any other so-called holy book, why would there be so much pressure towards those of us which believe it to stop preaching it? There's something about the Bible which gets under the skin of people. And of course, we know what it's all about. It's the uh, part of it which speaks about people's sins. And people love their sins. Uh, 50. And unto Joseph were born two sons before the years of famine came, which Asenith, or Asenuth, the daughter of Pontifera, priest of Anne, or priest of On, bare unto him. So Joseph has, be, has become a father. He's gone from uh, a prisoner to a father. He's gone from being a prisoner to the prime minister to a father. His pagan wife has given him two sons. And this is the mystery of scripture. Because you would have thought that Joseph would have married a Hebrew or you would have thought he would have married just an ordinary Gentile woman 
but he marries a pagan. He marries the daughter of a pagan priest. Fascinating. 51. And Joseph called the name of the firstborn Manasseh. For God said he hath made me forget all my, all my toil and all my father's house. So quite rightly, he gives God the glory. Whether or not you want to agree with Joseph marrying a Gentile woman, a pagan is one thing, but Joseph says, well, Romans 8, 28, Almighty God has graciously put me uh, together with this woman, and we are to assume, it was love at first sight, we are to assume that this is a real thing, not just a marriage of convenience. Manasseh, for God said he hath made me forget all of my toil and all my father's house. And yet, I don't think he ever really forgot about his uh, beloved father. 52, in the name of the second, called Ephraim. For God hath caused me to be fruitful in the land of my affliction. So it's a fascinating account of the coming of age. Joseph going from a boy to a man, a prisoner to prime minister, a father with two sons, which if you want to continue to spiritualize or look at this from the aspect of a type, you could say Joseph is Jesus and the two sons are picturing the Gentile, uh, the Gentile wing of the church and the Jewish wing of the church. And over in uh, uh, John chapter 10, the Lord says that he has other sheep which are not yet of my fold. And of course, that is in reference to the Gentiles. Dearth began to come, according as Joseph had said. And the dearth was in all lands. But in all the land of Egypt, there was bread. Time after time, the Lord will bless his people. He will bless those that go through the tribulation, those that get saved during the tribulation, those that refuse to take the mark of the beast uh, through the tribulation. He would uh, preserve the children of Israel during the uh, plagues and the uh, pestilences, pestilence and all the, situa all the uh, problems that they would occur as God was dealing with Pharaoh. Exodus uh, 6, 7, 8, 9 and 10, feeding right up until uh, the drowning of Pharaoh. 13, 14, going into chapter 15. The Bible speaks time after time of God providing your every need. And here it's the same kind of a thing. And yet I'm still thinking about Joseph being a type of Jesus, ruling and reigning on the new earth. And he will provide for their every need. 55, and when all the land of Egypt was famished, the people cried to Pharaoh for bread. And Pharaoh said unto all the Egyptians, Go unto Joseph, what he saith to you do. John chapter 2, Jesus Christ is at the wedding in Cana, and there's a need for wine to be produced. Wine, which of course was heavily diluted, practically impossible to become intoxicated uh, from drinking. And Mary says to those at this wedding uh, ceremony, whatever he says to you, do it concerning Jesus Christ. So Mary 
uh, gives the most important statements of our life. John chapter 2, and here Pharaoh gives the most important statement of his life concerning Joseph. What he saith to you do. Uh, 56, and the famine was over all the face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians. And the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. And all countries came into Egypt to Joseph to buy corn, because that the famine was so sore in all lands. We will never know, this side of heaven, uh, how much of this Joseph really understood. I would imagine that he knew what was taking place was unprecedented. He comes from a line of shepherds. He knows about Adam, of course. He knows about Abraham, of course. He knows about uh, Isaac, of course. He knows about Melchizedek, of course. Like word of mouth, around this time, there was no Old Testament uh, yet written. written. Excuse me. Uh, so I wonder how much of this he really understood. I mean, talk about giving a man power, like absolute power. And Pharaoh just sits back and says, go to Joseph, go to Joseph. And God the Father says, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. He will give you spiritual food. Go to Joseph, he will give you physical food. And they go to Joseph and they get what they need. But of course, this won't run indefinitely. Eventually, you're going to have an awful famine. But 56 tells you that the famine was over all the face of the earth, like the great flood covered the entire face of the earth. And Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold unto the Egyptians. And the famine waxed sore in the land of Egypt. It's really biting now, which if you think about uh, Stalingrad, when uh, the Germans were laying siege to uh, the outskirts of uh, Moscow. Uh, and I think they got to around 17 miles to the heart of Russia. And the Germans laid siege. And for a period of time, it was going their way. But like Napoleon would find out, the weather turned and like Napoleon found out, uh, he was unable to conquer Russia. And as Hitler found out, he was, able, he was unable to conquer Russia. And the Russians, of course, used to the bitterly cold weather. And it's still bitterly cold now, probably about uh, zero degrees Celsius, had the upper hand. And they're able to push the Germans back. And uh, I think by the end of... Uh, uh, Stalingrad, referred to as uh, Operation uh, Barbarossa. 900,000 German soldiers were marched from one side of Russia to the other side, like Siberia. 900,000. And I seem to remember a figure of around 40,000 leaving Siberia after the war like 1950, like 1951. That means 860,000 German POWs, not Nazis, just conscripts, died. They either died on that long walk from Moscow to Siberia, 
they died, they fell by the wayside, or they got to the gulags and died in the gulags. A terrible situation if you think of uh, Cambodia, if you think of Pol Pot, that demon-possessed uh, particular guy put his country back into the Stone Age, went back to zero one, and tens of thousands, if not millions, just starved to death. And you can do more research about uh, Pol Pot and Cambodia. In fact, we have an article on our website about that awful period of time. But here's the thing. These people are Darwinists. These people that I've mentioned are atheists. And therefore, they would say, well, it's the survival of the fittest. And they would say that they were the fittest, the fittest because they had the gun, which is what Lenin would say. He that has the gun... Uh, has the upper hand. In fact, I think it may have been uh, Mao Zedong who said that. But it makes no difference. They're all the same. Atheists, Darwinists, life is cheap. There's no such thing as truth, or truth is subjective, if you will. And therefore, when these people get into power, misery follows. 42, 3... And Joseph's ten brethren went down to buy corn in Egypt. But Benjamin, Joseph's, Joseph's brother, Jacob sent not with his brethren. For he said, lest peradventure mischief befall, uh, befall him. So Jacob, being Israel, wants his sons to go into Egypt to buy corn. People are starving, like eating their animals, like eating their children. In fact, going back to uh, Venezuela, I seem to recall reading a few days ago that there are people in uh, Caracas and on the outskirts of Venezuela, like now, 2018, that are eating animals in the zoos, like they were doing in Germany during uh, or 1944, 45, 46. But here... Jacob doesn't want uh, Benjamin to go down, lest peradventure, lest perhaps mischief befall him. Meaning, my son Joseph has been killed, or so he thought, and therefore I don't want Benjamin to go down and be killed again, or follow his brother's example, follow in the steps of his brother. Now, if you think of Joseph dying, if you think of Jacob being uh, reconciled to Joseph, then you see Joseph picturing the death of Christ and Christ coming up out of the tomb. And if you take it, you know, if you look at it from that particular aspect, you see uh, Jacob picturing the believing Israelites, end of the tribulation, um, receiving Jesus Christ, acknowledging his resurrection. Verse 6, and Joseph was a governor over the land, and he was that sold, and he it was that was sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brethren came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth. Talk about the boots on the other foot. You've got the brethren of Joseph, number one, hated him, number two, wanted to make him look like a fool. Number three, wanted to destroy their father because he was greatly beloved by his father, like, this is my beloved son, hear ye him. 
And here it says how Joseph was the governor over the land. Jesus Christ is the governor at the first advent and he's governor at the second advent. For here and now, the kingdom of God, he's the governor of the church in a spiritual sense. At the second advent, he's governor over the whole world in a literal sense. And here it was that was sold to all the people of the land. If you think of Jesus Christ being sold for 30 pieces of silver, you can see the similarities here. And Joseph's brethren came, and Jesus' brethren came, and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the earth, picturing the second advent, picturing Israel receiving him, and they will receive him, those that believe on him, of course. Not all Jews are going to believe on him. Not all Jews are going to receive him. A good number of Jews in the tribulation are going to receive the Antichrist and take the mark of the beast. But enough, thanks to the 144,000 Jewish male evangelists, are going to receive him and be saved. Verse 7, And Joseph saw his brethren, and he knew them, but made himself strange unto them, and spake roughly unto them. And he said unto them, Whence come ye? And they said, From the land of Canaan, to buy food. And Joseph knew his brethren, but they knew not him. It's clearly John 1, 11 in reverse. He came unto his own, but his own received him not. But to as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. At the same time, I think what's going on here is Joseph is not just toying with them, and he will toy with them for at least two or three chapters. He's also trying to draw out from them, uh, number one, what is going on in Canaan, what is going on with their father. And he's also wanting to, uh, he's also wanting to know if they can identify him, which by this piece of scripture seems that they can't. He's been in Egypt for 20 years. He's got a lovely, uh, lovely tan. He's dressed like an Egyptian. And that's what Moses looked like. It speaks over in uh, Exodus chapter 2 when uh, Zipporah and her sisters were rescued by Moses. And they say to Jethro, an Egyptian delivered us from the bad shepherds, the wicked shepherds, because Joseph and Moses were dressed like Egyptians. They had their garments on. They were dressing like Egyptians. And here they can't spot that Joseph, around 30 from verse 46, well tanned, wearing the gear, wearing uh, the garments, has completely been able to hide his identity to them. And if you will, that's a picture of Christ coming the first time. And Paul told you from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 how the devil has blinded the minds of the Jews uh, and therefore they are unable to believe on him. And they are unable to believe on him because they won't believe on him. Old Testament, the Jews corporately rejected God the Father. New Testament, the Jews corporately rejected Christ. Book of Acts the Jews corporally rejected the Holy Ghost. And therefore, as a result of that, the devil has been allowed, thanks to the Lord's 
permissive will to blind their minds and their eyes and their hearts. Uh, look at verse 9, please. And Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. And said unto them, Ye are spies, to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come. So now he wants to toy with them. Now you could suggest this, you could suggest that this is a righteous anger. Paul would tell you to be angry and sin not. You can have a righteous anger. You can have a righteous anger without losing your temper. I know some people don't believe that saved people should ever get angry. There's a guy in America called Jesse Lee Patterson, or Peterson I think it is. And he's a very interesting character to watch. He's a conservative black man, makes a lot of good points. But he falls into the trap, unfortunately, of number one, uh, saved people don't sin. And number two, that saved people should never be angry. And if you are saved and you get angry, something is wrong with you. Not at all. Jesus Christ would be angry. Jesus Christ would get a whip and a cord and drive uh, those out to the temple. John chapter 2, that were making merchandise. They were making money through indulgences like the Catholic Church have done for, well, 2,000 years almost. And if that doesn't picture an angry man, I don't know what does. But here, Joseph is angry. He's also grieved. And he's also hurt. They say that time heals. Not always. Not always. I think there were times when Joseph would be reminiscing with his wife and their sons about what it was like being a Hebrew uh, back in Canaan. And I'm sure Joseph had a lot to say to his pagan wife. And I'd like to think he got her saved. I'd like to think that Moses got uh, Zipporah and... Uh, his second wife down the line saved. I'd like to think that Abraham got Keturah saved. It's hard to think that such strong men, uh, such powerful and uh, preeminent men would fail to get their wife saved. But many times that is just what does happen. Just because the Lord would choose him men to do things for him doesn't necessarily mean that they're gonna save all of their families. And here it says, Ye are spies to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come. He knows perfectly well that's not the case. He knows they are coming to receive food. And Jesus Christ speaks about spiritual food. And spiritual food, over in John chapter 6, he says, If you want to be saved, you need to eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. Not physically, of course, spiritually. And John 6, 6, 6, count the three sixes. It says, many, not some, but many of his disciples walked no more with him. This is a hard saying. How can we eat this man's flesh? How can we drink this man's blood? And they completely and intentionally misunderstood what he said. He doesn't correct them. Like John chapter 2, destroy this uh, temple, this body, and in three days I will resurrect it, raise it up from the dead, from the ground, they misunderstand that and again he doesn't correct their ignorance and here it's a similar kind of thing Joseph is playing with them he has a righteous anger and this will go on for another couple of chapters 10 and they said unto him nay my lord no my lord 
but to buy food are thy servants come. They're on the cusp of panicking to be accused of being a spy would number one result in one's detention, interrogation and probably execution. There's a story of uh, Shostakovich, the famous, famous uh, Russian uh, musician, composer, and on one occasion he was arrested by the Russian secret police, taken to be interrogated, was detained for many hours, and they did a lot of mind games with him, and they thought he was a spy, he wasn't of course, but they thought he was a spy, and to cut a long story short, after many days of interrogating him, like sleep, deprivation, and uh, uh, causing him to dehydrate and hallucinate, as he was released, he left the uh, prison compound where the, uh, it was the KGB, then I think it was the KGB, uh, where they were detaining political prisoners. As he was leaving the compound, he happened to look down and there was a, uh, an underground prison, like a dungeon, where Joseph was detained. And as he looked down, he could see maybe 200 people packed in tight. And these people looking absolutely desperate and he thought to himself this, he thought, those poor people. What had happened was Shostakovich had been released by mistake. He wasn't supposed to have been released. There was a technical error and he realised that uh, he got out by the grace of God. And I think he went to America, excuse me, uh, not long after that and never looked back. But he knew that had he been convicted of being a spy, he would have been executed. And here it's the same kind of thing. Uh, 11. We are all one man's sons. We are true men. Thy servants are no spies. We are real Jews. We are one man's son. If you think of that term from uh, the Gospel of John, we are Abraham's servants, or we are Moses' servants. Uh, we have, uh, we're not in bondage to anyone. And the Jews were very desperate to be affiliated to Abraham and to Moses. We shan't have this man to reign over us. But you see, it's not enough. It's not enough to say, well, we are Jews. We follow Moses or Abraham, which incidentally they don't. Uh, Paul told you that he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. And time after time, he would tell you from the Book of Romans that he couldn't live it and he would tell you that when the law revived came alive he died in fact he would say that he would die daily going back to the ridiculous belief that when a person gets saved they don't sin that they are somehow saints like supermen or superwomen if that's your belief you need to have a reality check verse uh, 12 please and he said unto them, Nay, but to see the wickedness, excuse me, but to see the nakedness of the land, ye are come. So he's dragging this out, which may picture Christ at the second advent before, excuse me, he uh, is introduced, reconciled to renegade Jews who have turned to him in faith. There may be a period of not recriminations, but a period of 
recollections, perhaps. I mean, the Jews have got so much to answer for. They are, they are the chosen race, they have the oracles, they wrote the scripture, like both testaments. They have survived so much. They've survived kingdoms, governments, world wars. They are still alive and kicking. The Lord said he would never throw them away. Uh, Jeremiah 31. And yet tragically, most Jews to this day remain in unbelief. And here, Joseph, type of Jesus, is, if, a, if you will, sort of dragging it out. And yet, in a roundabout way, they were uh, spies in the sense of being guilty of espionage because they sold a Joseph to a foreign power. They sold him out to a foreign nation, which today would be called treachery. 13. And they said, Thy servants are twelve brethren, the sons, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is not. One is not. Very diplomatic. They don't say, well, our youngest or second youngest has died, i.e. because we sold him out. They wouldn't dare say that, of course, so they are very diplomatic. But they do mention uh, uh, the youngest being uh, Benjamin, uh, 14. And Joseph said unto them, That is it that I spake unto you, saying, Ye are spies, hereby ye shall be proved by the life of Pharaoh, with the authority of Pharaoh, ye shall not go forth hence, except your youngest brother come hither, with the authority of Pharaoh, be ye baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, will bow every tongue will confess. So Joseph is citing the authority that he has through Pharaoh, Jesus Christ has the authority from the Father to be Lord of heaven and earth. And here he wants to detain them. He wants to further examine them. 16. Send one of you and let him fetch your brother and ye shall be kept in prison that your words may be proved whether there be any truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh. Surely ye are spies. You detain me you left me for dead. You sold me to the Gentiles, the Ishmaelites, according to Muhammad, his forefathers. And now I am top dog. It feels pretty good. They say vengeance, uh, vengeance is sweet, and yet you are told that vengeance belongs to the Lord. But again, Joseph isn't born again. He's a righteous man. He's more righteous than most of us are. Saved, of course. In fact, it could be that the prince mentioned from uh, Ezekiel could be Joseph. So he's enjoying himself. He's got the power. He has come of age, if you will. And again, the uh, boot, the shoe, is on the other foot. Surely you are spies. You are really deceptive. I'm going to detain you. I'm going to take my time with you. But what he really wants is Benjamin to come down. So therefore, it could be that 
Pharaoh is a picture of God the Father. Joseph is a picture of Jesus Christ. And Benjamin is a picture of the Apostle Paul. 17. And he put them all together into ward. Three days. Like a detention centre. House arrest. And Joseph said unto them, The third day this do, and live, for I fear God. Third day, picturing the resurrection, of course. If ye be true men, let one of your brethren be bound in the house, excuse me, of your prison. Go ye carry corn for the famine of your houses, but bring your youngest brother unto me, so shall your words be verified, and ye shall not die, and they did so. Verified, an old word which we still use today. And here, again, you can't miss the irony. You've detained me. You put me in a prison for a period of time. I'm going to uh, put you into a prison for a period of time. Uh, 21, and they said one to another, we are very guilty concerning our brother. In that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. Their consciences have got a hold of them. They know that they're in trouble. They don't say what is truth. They don't say that's just your opinion. They don't argue like the, uh, the uh, Darwinists would argue and say truth is subjective. They start to worry. They're speaking to one another in Hebrew. And they know that, or they are of the belief that what is taking place is as a result of their sins. God is clearly working in the background. Romans 8.28. He wants to convict them of their involvement in the betrayal of an innocent man. Like the Jews would do concerning Jesus. They sold him out. He was innocent. And they would side with the uh, Gentile leaders. It says over in uh, John's Gospel that they wouldn't go into the area where the uh, Gentiles were meeting, like Pilate and others, because they were worried about being defiled. And yet they would have no qualms about putting an innocent man to death. Uh, to death. We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul. You were told from uh, the uh, 53rd chapter from Isaiah that Christ was made a sin offering for us. We were told from the word of God that he uh, went to the cross despising the shame. We are told that he not only died in the place of sinners, but that his soul became an offering of sin, or an offering for sin. And no, just for the record, I don't believe that Christ went to hell, was tortured, and was raised or resurrected from hell to become the first born-again man. I don't believe that. But he did become a sin offering for us. And here, what they are saying is going to go two, three, four thousand years into the future. They had no idea what they were saying, and yet they're completely on the money. Therefore, is this distress come upon us? You reap what you sow. And they knew that what they were experiencing was linked back to their involvement with the 
betrayal of Joseph. 22. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child? And you would not hear. Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. The innocent blood of Christ. Several times, I think it's three times in Scripture, Judas and Pilate and others would say, innocent man, innocent blood. Such couldn't be said about you or me. And here Reuben is speaking up. Again, uh, speaking the truth. And he's saying, in essence, I told you so. I told you not to do this. But it's too late. And then you not that Joseph understood them, for he spake unto them by an interpreter. Acts chapter 2, 1 Corinthians 12, 13 and 14 speaks about tongues. And the Lord would use tongues as a sign against the unbelieving Jews. Whereas prophecy like preaching, like worship, is for the benefits of everybody. So again, this is like in reverse. You've got Joseph in the room, hearing what is going on. They don't know that he is Joseph. They don't know that the Prime Minister of uh, Egypt is able to follow what they are saying, because of course he is their brother. So it's tongues in reverse. Uh, 24. And he turned himself about from them and wept, and returned to them again, and communed with them, and took from them Simeon, and bound him before their eyes. He's like, tied him up, if you will, or he has detained him. He may put a cord, like handcuffs, around his wrists. That would have been quite a shock for the brothers of Joseph to see. At one stage, they were very powerful, and now they are powerless. And nobody dares raise a hand. Nobody dares say, get your hands off, Simeon. We all came as a family. We're going to leave as a family. They are completely powerless. Picturing Almighty God being omniscient, omnipresent, and omnipotent. Go down to verse... Uh, 35 please and it came to pass as they emptied their sacks that behold every man's bundle of money was in this was in his sack and when both they and their father saw the bundles of money they were afraid and Jacob their father said unto them me have you bereaved of my children Joseph is not and Simeon is not and you will take Benjamin away all these things are against me poor old Jacob the old schemer, and of course jo uh, Jacob is Israel, he's thinking to himself this, I've lost Joseph, I've lost Simeon, this guy in Egypt is demanding Benjamin, it looks like I'm going to lose three of my sons, it's all against me, I can't take any more, and of course old Jacob was a schemer, so in a roundabout way he's getting his, uh, his uh, comeuppance, his comeuppance, if you think of uh, David uh, being weak and not really dealing with uh, Absalom killing his half-brother for raping Absalom's sister. David didn't really deal with it. He 
put it off going back to although he was a great man and certainly saved when it came to being a family man when it came to being a father being a father weak and that thing went on for a couple of years 37 and Reuben spake unto his father saying slay my two sons if I bring them not to thee deliver him into my hand and I'll bring him to thee again a stupid statement to make not particularly a mature thing to say but Reuben thinks he can take control of the situation and he's prepared to offer up his two sons if he can't get Simeon and also Benjamin back home and he said my son shall not go down with you for his brother is dead and he is yet uh, he is left alone if mischief befall him by the way in the which ye go then shall you bring me down my grey hairs with sorrow to the grave well of course I mean to lose one son your beloved was pretty rough to lose two sons is even worse but three sons just bury me this is what is going through the mind of Jacob and Joseph is dragging this out he's causing pain and misery not only to his brothers but also to his ailing father and as a result there's a sense of panic crisis what do we do how can we resolve this 43 3 and Judah spake unto him saying the man did solemnly protest unto us saying you shall not see my face except your brother be with you he made it very clear father we've got to take Benjamin with us excuse me he's made us promise and if we don't go down we can't get Simeon out if thou wilt send our brother with us we will go down and buy thee food but if thou will not send him we will not go down for the man said unto us you shall not see my face except your brother be with you so they are reiterating what Joseph has said to them Joseph of course again is in the driving seat please excuse, excuse the sniffing they have no option but to do what he wants them to do and they need uh, to get their father's permission because it's a very uh, patriarch, uh, patriarchal system Jacob is Israel Jacob is head of the family and without his permission they can't really do it six and Israel said wherefore dealt ye so ill with me as to tell the man whether ye had yet a brother why would you tell him that you can just imagine this conversation and Jacob is saying you guys are a bunch of imbeciles why would you tell the prince of Egypt the prime minister of Egypt that you've got a brother are you trying to cause me to have a premature death seven and they said the man asked us straightly of our state and of our kindred saying is your father yet alive have ye another brother and we told him according to the tenor of these words could we certainly know that he would say bring your brother down that's fair enough they had no idea that Joseph would be asking such intimate questions they had no idea that Joseph would even be interested in their brothers in their father he's played them at their own game and he's won eight and Judah said unto Israel his father 
Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and both we and thou and also our little ones. Father, please send us. As a father sent the son into the world, even so send I you. In reference to the apostles, of course. I will be surety for him, insurance for him, of my hand shalt thou require him. If I bring him not unto thee, and set him before thee, then let me bear the blame forever. For except we had lingered, surely now we have we had returned this second time. So he's trying to put a wrong right. He's got to go down, he's got to do what Joseph has asked of him, and he's taking responsibility if it all goes belly up, as they say. And ten again, except we had lingered, we hadn't delayed to go down, surely by now we had returned this second time. Father, you are delaying us. Time is of the essence. And the Father Israel said unto them, If it must be so now, do this. Take of the best fruits in the land in your vessels and carry down the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, spices, a myrrh, nuts and almonds. And take double money in your hand and the money that was brought again in the mouth of your sacks carried again in your hand. Peradventure, it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again unto the man. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man, that you may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. You got a picture there of gifts, grace, and peace offerings. Jacob is a man of the world. He knows that something has to be done to put a wrong right to take gifts down to Egypt was a sign of submission a peace offering it's also in a roundabout way trying to pay back the gift of everlasting life which is what some people do some people get saved and they try and uh, pay back what God has done for them you can't pay God back for what he has done for you if you are saved you need to rest in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes people get saved, they become very religious, and they want to do this and do that, and God isn't against that, of course. But just check yourself to see why you are doing it. If you are doing that to try and stay saved, or if you are doing that to uh, somehow help the Lord out uh, concerning your salvation, then stop, stop it. Just quit doing that because you can't save yourself and you can't uh, give God anything. Just believe on him, receive him and rest in him. And God Almighty give you mercy before the man that he may send away your other brother and Benjamin. If I be bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So at last, Jacob is broken, if you will. Jacob can no longer trust in himself. Jacob has to trust the Lord. And it starts off by uh, him saying, God Almighty, give you mercy before the man, 
and the rest concerning if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. It's taken him a long time to get to the stage in his life. What initially appeared to be a sense of cruelty on the part of Joseph has, allowed, has been allowed to uh, run its course due to the Lord's permissive will. 16. And when Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the, to the ruler of his house, Bring these men home, and slay and make ready, for these men shall dine with me at noon. Clearly, a picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Also, clearly in reference to uh, John 21, when Jesus Christ is dining with the apostles, post the resurrection of course. 17. And the man did as Joseph bade, and the man brought the men into Joseph's house. Picture of the Holy Spirit, of course, like Jethro, going back to uh, his wife and Moses, and here Joseph's servants is acting as a middleman. Picture of the Holy Spirit, Christ and the church, Joseph and his brethren. And the men were afraid because they were brought into Joseph's house and they said because of the money that was returned in our sacks at the first time are we brought in that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us and take us with bondmen and our asses a bad conscience once again they are thinking the worst not the best and they came near to the steward of Joseph's house and they communed with him at the door of the house and said oh sir we come indeed down at the first time to buy food and it came to pass when we were come to the inn that we opened our sacks and behold every man's money was in the mouth of his sack our money in full weights and we have brought it again in our hand they are confessing and the bible says we are to confess our sins to the lord first john chapter one we don't confess our sins to each other we may confess our faults to one another if we have wronged one another, but we don't confess our sins to one another. And here they are panicking, they are terrified. If the truth be known that they've been found out, they can't really work out how uh, this has taken place concerning the sacks. Every man's money in the mouth of his sack, 21, has taken place. Another money have we brought down in our hands to buy food, verse 22. We cannot tell who put our money in our sacks. And he said, Peace be to you, fear not. Your God and the God of your father hath given you treasure in your sacks. I had your money, and he brought Simeon out unto them. Picture of grace. But talk about putting them through the mill. Talk about dragging this out. Talk about if you are putting the fear of God into them. 26. And when Joseph came home, they brought him the present which was in their hand into the house and bowed themselves to him to the earth. Like oversense, uh, like almost on their faces, going back to one day his brothers would be bowing down to him and they would do so when Jesus Christ returns. 
and he asked them of their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spake? I mean, Joseph was a powerful man, a busy man. Back in the 1980s, Margaret Thatcher was known to work 16 hours a day, seven days a week. She sacrificed her marriage, her two children, a son and a daughter, to be the Prime Minister, which is what world leaders do. They give up everything to run their countries. And therefore, for Joseph, dealing with a catastrophe, dealing with a worldwide famine, to remember that these men have got an elderly father, and on top of that, to want to be inquiring about them, completely throws them. Is he yet alive? Now, Jacob, of course, is Israel. So you've got here Jesus inquiring towards Israel at the second advent. And they answered, Thy servant, our father, is in good health. He is yet alive. And they bowed down their heads and made obeisance. Again, they know they are in the, in the uh, presence of power. They're also not sure how this is going to go. And I kind of think this must have felt really good for Joseph. Going back to vengeance is sweet. Uh, 29. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your younger brother of whom you spake unto me? And he said, God be gracious unto thee, my son. Benjamin and Joseph had the same mother, being Rachel, of course, who was probably the love of Jacob's life. If you think of uh, Jesus Christ, referred to uh, as the Everlasting Father, Isaiah chapter 9. And there are two accounts in the Gospels when Jesus Christ would heal a man and call him son. Uh, and he would heal a woman and call her daughter. And yet Jesus Christ was no more than 33 years of age. And therefore to address a woman as daughter or a man as son is somewhat odd but not if you take Isaiah 9 into consideration like how Jesus Christ is the everlasting father Jesus Christ is not God the father Jesus Christ is the everlasting father concerning the Messiah's relationship with Israel during the millennium which is partly pictured during the Gospels same kind of thing here my son God be gracious unto thee. Look at verse 30. And Joseph made haste, for his bowels did yearn upon his brother. And he sought where to weep, and he entered into his chamber and wept there. John chapter 11, Jesus Christ is en route to meet Mary and Martha. Lazarus has just died, and he gets to Bethany, and there's a lot of weeping and wailing going on. you got Jews acting like unbelieving Gentiles without a care in the world, without a hope in the world and it says how Christ wept same kind of thing here, Joseph is in great agony but he wants to prolong this he doesn't want people to know yet who he is and what is going on, 31 and he washed his face and went out and refrained himself and said set on bread 
he's going to drag this out which again pictures if you will the first advent some of the jews believed on him like the apostles but most did not and therefore there's going to be a period of delay before he before he reveals himself to his brethren which i would suggest is the church age at least two thousand years excuse me uh 33 and they sat before him the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth and the men marveled one at another well of course they did you've got 11 boys born uh, to four women like every six months or every five months those kids were born very quickly very rapidly and the Lord used that going back to his permissive will to speed up the creation of a nation and here Joseph has instructed his servant to put the oldest at the top of the table right down to the youngest at the bottom of the table and that would have shocked them like how does he know who we are or how does he know what our ages are going back to Jesus Christ being omnipresent omniscient and omnipotent 34 and he took and sent messes unto them from before him but Benjamin's mess was five times so much as any of theirs and they drank and were merry with him so the tide is turning and as I say that the wind is picking up so it's time for me to wrap this message up this is the picture this is the turning of the tide this is the long-awaited married supper of the lamb joseph is going to get closer to his brethren and we will look at that over the next few weeks because it's not as clear as you would initially think they drink and make merry with him so i would imagine that wine has been uh, used some kind of uh, alcohol has been uh, presented just for the record alcohol isn't prohibited in scripture paul would tell timothy to take some wine and i mean wine not vine for his often infirmities but intoxication is clearly a sin and therefore it's wise to abstain if you can from uh, alcohol but here a meal is taking place joseph being a type of jesus is sitting down with his brethren clearly in reference to the marriage supper of the lamb abraham isaac and jacob and others will be invited there and this will run its course and eventually lead up to joseph and jacob being reconciled picturing jesus and israel at the second advent being reconciled so a lot of ground uh, by the grace of god has been covered it's still bitterly cold uh, for this time of the year not unexpected of course but it's a beautiful day it's a very crisp day and i will continue to uh, come up to the pulpit to finish off the book of genesis and again please join us this coming sunday as i look at uh, the third chapter from the book of exodus and that will be uh, 11 a.m this coming sunday uk time and may the lord bless you all in jesus name amen and amen.